Hello, my name is Jonathan Getz, and this is Phonicle, a podcast devoted to sharing true life stories, both big and small, told by our elders. My hope is that this podcast encourages others to ask elders in their lives to tell more stories, revealing remarkable life experiences. To learn more about Phonicle, visit phonicle.com, P-H-O-N-I-C-L-E.com. For this episode, I'm concluding my interview with Dick Schiefelbusch. We last left Dick at the end of World War II, when he'd been freed from a prison camp after two years. During that time, however, Dick was able to participate in formal debates with his fellow American POWs. One of those debates helped influence Dick to make a difference with his life after he returned home to Kansas. When we were in prison camp, we had a uh, series of debates. One of the debates I remember was uh, resolved that resolved that the good old days were bad. You know, it was a time when the conveyances weren't as good and took longer to have a date and all of that. <laughs> the last one we had was called Resolve the Prison Camp is a Blessing in Disguise. And it was considered to be a, a humorous comment. And if the guys that were on the affirmative had the hardest job than the guys on the negative. <laughs> Nevertheless, we had lots of fun in the, at the debate, and we came back to the, eventually to our room, and two of the debaters were in our room. And we got to talking about it, and I said to them, you know, all we'd have to do was to change one word in that proposition, and that is the word blessing. We would use the word opportunity in disguise. Now, I think it was what triggered the whole schema that I now attribute to my career here. And what I did was figure out what was the important most important thing that I could do, and that would be to learn how to help people. How do you learn how to help people? They have different problems. You can't just use a, the style of a minister or something like that. You've got to figure it out how to really do it. As I went into that in KU and Northwestern University, I learned that the little kids were the most exposed of all. And we've since learned, of course, that the first three years of life are the most important years for learning that children will ever have. They were the most exposed and neglected and misunderstood. That's why I started out with children and speech correction and communication training. Dick's focus on helping children in speech communication eventually led him to begin the Parsons Language Project under the tutelage of the University of Kansas Bureau of Child Research, a bureau Dick directed and is now known as the Schiefelbusch Institute for Lifespan Studies. According to KUHistory.com, the Parsons Language Project set the course for the bureau to become, quote, one of the most influential authorities on mental retardation and language development in the world. We finally learned, after a few months of research and, and seminars and all, that the way to teach these children is where they are. 
in little groups in an environment where they can learn how to behave effectively and even talk to adults, and even if they have an impairment, how to communicate. That was the beginning, and of course it spread to mental retardation and cleft palate and cerebral palsy and so on and on. Then it spread even farther than that. What we used was a kind of a recording. You know, we would learn how to cause and effect. We would study that and find that children responded better to certain kinds of approaches and so on. But then we began to realize that there was a systematic way to not only teach the child but to teach people how to do it. And it was about in that stage where we got an invitation to give a program at one of the national organizations that was having a meeting in Milwaukee. We made our presentation. There were five of us, four what we call scientists and and then old Dick. Dick was considered to be the kind of chairman. (laughs) They hadn't acknowledged me as a scientist yet, my colleagues. (laughs) What happened was that the people in the audience just came up to us after it was over and they didn't want to go away. They just kept asking questions. We must have been there two hours answering questions when it was over before we escaped and flew back home. You didn't expect that to happen? No, we did not expect that kind of accolade. Uh, But it kept happening. We knew we were on the right track because they knew what we were doing was good from what we were telling them, showing them, but they also knew it, it was important. And why was it important? Because it was teachable. Others could do it. Journals had it. Behavior analysts were not accepted at first. Then it began to dawn on them that it actually was a growing field of action, and people began to include it in courses in their universities and in their journals. And and it didn't take long before the journals, the international journals, picked it up and we began to get these invitations to give presentations in other countries. Dick visited 42 countries in total, including Sweden, where a university town's nearby burial site reinforced the power and purpose of Dick's intention to make the most of his opportunity to help people. And the most dramatic experience I had in Europe was in Sweden. There I had enough gumption to take a couple of people along so we could have a kind of a seminar for them, a workshop. And when that was all over, they took me to a little place about six miles from the campus. And there was a place called the Mounds. And what it was, it was a a hill about 40, 50 feet long and about 20, 30 feet wide. And there was a grove of trees nearby. What would happen there is that a mother in the town, if she had a a newborn baby who was impaired, she didn't know what to do. And so I suppose friends and neighbors and cultural leaders 
would console her and and they would have a ceremony up at the mounds and they would as the consequence of the ceremony they would commit the baby to the lap of the gods. Now that was done frequently enough to over a reasonably short historical period to create a whole monument to those little kids. One country. I found reason to give workshops and seminars and papers and visitations and invite them to come to our country and spend time if they could. First thing you know, we had a ball rolling. We got better than I was, far better. Technology and time and improved teaching and <laughs> smarter people <laughs> lead. They do better work. So what I've got now has got a flood of stuff coming back from journals and yearly reports of our program and on and on. I interviewed Dick at his home in Lawrence, Kansas, the day of a big basketball game between two storied programs, the University of Kansas and the University of Kentucky, who were squaring off at the nearby and historic Allen Fieldhouse. At 97, Dick still regularly attends games and vividly recounts the history he's witnessed firsthand, from the game-changing force that was Kansas center Wilt Chamberlain in the late 50s to watching the Jayhawks win the national championship in nearby Kansas City in 1988. But Dick's fandom goes beyond simple appreciation of the sport. He was very much involved with the program when it was still in its infancy. When I came back from the wars was a basketball arrangement that was in what they called the library. They had a big room with a balcony, and they had a big stage, and they could arrange a basketball court and a small, about three 3,000 people. The reason I got involved is that they needed data for the coach at the halftime, stat group, they call us. And we would take uh, a lot of information we were able to collect, you know, where the shots were taken and all kinds of things that were part of the strategies of the coaches. But we used to sit on about middle of the, you know, back about six rows and had a special area for the stat crew. So we had a ringside seat for every game, you know, and also placed to park our car out and back, reserved for us. So we were special guys. <laughs> but Allen Fieldhouse, you know, became on, and that's when it got big time. Do you remember when that opened, the first time you were in that building? Very, very well. Tell me about it. <laughs> well, the, the dedication of the Fieldhouse, I was involved in. Because uh, the speeders, what we had was a little committee, and we devised a system for the dedication. Two guys, I think it was Herc Harvey and Gene Courtney, went to the archives and 
got the full story of the history of basketball and uh, wrote a kind of a, uh, a visual script to display the history of basketball. And what it involved in is how it was played over a period of a long time. Sometimes, some years, there were as many as 12 guys on the court. Other times, eight, you know. And it sort of experimentally was reduced to five, you know, on a t- team. It's just a crowd out there until you... So we had to show that, the history of basketball. The way we did it, we had a guy in the, each corner with some of these players that were going to run on the court during halftime, you see, the dedication. I was one of the corner guys, and we had a, each had a walkie-talkie so we knew exactly when to run our guys on and I'd do the whole thing. It just went boom, 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 boom. You know, <laughs> we couldn't have get, gotten them all in one corner, you know. So anyway, that's that was my part. Thank you for listening to this episode of Phonicle. If you have an elder in your life that would like to share their stories for potential use in a future episode, please email me at listen at com. For more episodes of Phonicle, visit phonicle.com, where you can also sign up for new episode email alerts. Thanks.